Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. arguably Australia's first really important philosopher and the enduring power of his work is evident as a legacy perhaps particularly in Australia's strong contributions in the philosophy of mind. His views on utilitarianism, on mind-brain identity and the nature of time continue to be discussed in our classrooms and in our seminars today. So this series seeks to invite highly distinguished philosophers who embody the intellectual ideals that Jack Smart upheld and whose work in some ways resonates with his. And luckily for us, since he made uh, important and lasting contributions to many diverse areas of philosophy, we're able to have quite a range of different lecturers in the series. And I myself have to say I'm very pleased to see a trend to having more women invited in this series. Um, and I know that that thought will probably resonate with our speaker here tonight, too. Um, so Professor Sally Haslanger, whom we are very honoured to have deliver this lecture this evening, is herself a remarkable force in contemporary philosophy. She's the Ford Professor of Philosophy in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at MIT, and also an affiliate in the MIT's Women's and Gender Studies program, which for a long time she chaired. Now, many of you will know her for her important work in a wide range of areas of analytic philosophy. Sally Haslinger began her philosophical life specialising in analytic metaphysics and epistemology and in ancient philosophy, particularly Aristotle. Over time, she's developed her interests in social and political philosophy, feminist theory and critical race theory. And her talk today, which is titled Cognition as a Social Skill, reflects her concerns with thinking at the intersections of these areas and interrogating their core questions. She's very widely published. Her book, Resisting <coughs> Reality, Social Construction and Social Critique, collects papers published over the course of 20 years that link work in contemporary metaphysics, epistemology and philosophy of language with social and political issues concerning gender, race and the family. And in 2014, this book was awarded the Joseph B. Gittler Prize for outstanding scholarly contributions in the field of philosophy of social sciences. Indeed, our speaker has been the recipient of many awards, including Distinguished Woman Philosopher of the Year in 2010 and MIT's Martin Luther King Jr. Leadership Award in 2014. Now, it certainly was a turning point in my own research when I encountered Sally's powerful commentary on how social norms of gender and race play out in every dimension of our lives, and notably, indeed, in our own space of disciplinary philosophy. And that really set me on a new course of, of research I'm still pursuing now. Sally's been a real leader in raising issues to do with women's status in philosophy, as well as that of racial minorities. And her work in this area, which includes critical analysis bolstered by some very sobering facts, for instance, about the rate of publication and citation of work by women philosophers, this has been highly influential, I think, in getting the discipline to take a good, hard look at itself. 
Now, I don't know where Jack Smart stood on any of these issues. I'm sure he didn't perhaps think about them all that much. But I have the sense from his work that he appreciated philosophers taking a good, hard look at things, including at themselves. Um, and so it's in this spirit that I invite you to welcome Professor Sally Haslan. Okay, so I will read and talk and read and talk. Um, as I often say, I, I, I like to have a lot of text in front of you because I'm aware that um, many people aren't uh, especially adept at, at understanding full arguments just when they're spoken to. I think it's important that we are all on the same page, so to speak. I want your criticisms, I want your comments, so I don't want to make it hard for you to understand. Um, and so uh, that's partly why I do this. I also should point out that, as, um, as Fiona said, I'm a bit of a dilettante in the sense that I work on a lot of different things and try to bring them together. And there are many people in the room today who are much more expert on some of the things I'm going to be talking about than I am. And I welcome your feedback and your criticisms. OK. So let's start with the introduction. I'll let you make, through the, <laughs> let you make it through the Vulcan quote on your own. Um, so introduction. So epistemology, I think, is valuable for many reasons. What could be the problem? This is, in fact, Tommy Shelby's view um, about ideology. He argues that we should understand racism as, quote, fundamentally a type of ideology. And more specifically, he says, racism is a set of misleading beliefs and implicit attitudes about races or race relations whose wide currency serves a hegemonic social function. What exactly does he mean by ideology? He says, an ideology is a widely held set of loosely associated beliefs and implicit judgments that misrepresent significant social realities and that function through this distortion to bring about or perpetuate unjust social relations. So he's really committed to just ideology being a set of beliefs widely shared within a particular culture. And on his view, ideology uh, is subject to two forms of critique. Here he is again. Racial ideologies have the same function as other ideologies, but can be distinguished from them by their content. Both dimensions, content and function, are proper objects of social criticism. Their content justifies epistemic criticism, though sometimes oral, also moral criticism as within moral beliefs, and their function justifies moral criticism. So he's all down with this idea that, yeah, epistemology, we just draw on that to criticize ideology. Shelby's committed to moral critique based on Rawls' theory of justice. Critique of ideological belief, for example, that races exist, derives from scientific inquiry. And he actually says, in, indicated in the footnote, that uh, the linchpin of racism is the belief that there are races. OK, although Shelby's views on ideology are compelling in many ways, Tommy is a good friend of mine. I admire him tremendously. I think so much of what he's done is important. I nonetheless think. That, that, that his idea that ideology is a widely held set of loosely associated beliefs and implicit judgments is inadequate, and so standard epistemic critiques don't give us all we need. So what I'm going to be doing today is talking about a different account of ideology that I think also needs to have an epistemic critique, but not a standard, not in terms of truth or warrant, something like that. We need to go beyond that to critique ideology. So the problem begins to appear in Shelby's own characterization of ideology. I gave you his definition over here, but this is what he says. Ideologies are not generally attributed to individuals, but to social groups, whole societies, or historical eras. These are those commonly held beliefs and implicit judgments that legitimate stratified social orders or imperial projects, 
Indeed, the locus of ideology is common sense, that reservoir of background assumptions that agents draw on spontaneously as they engage in social intercourse. So I think this quote begins to show a tension in his understanding of ideology. On one hand, defining ideologies as sets of commonly held beliefs makes it seem that the content of the ideology is determined by the attitudes of the majority. Ideology is just what most people believe or believe together. But as he suggests later in the quote, what people believe derives from the ideology that dominates their social context. He points out later, the relevant beliefs play a role in mediating social interaction. They're part of the life world or common meanings through which social actors live their lives and coordinate their actions. He also says ideologies are essentially forms of social thought. Okay, so ideology seems to involve shared beliefs but it's also part of an explanation of why we share systematic social illusions that sustain injustice. Taking ideology simply to be constituted by the set of shared beliefs, I think, poses several problems. There's some more chair seats down here if anybody wants to come up just in case you can. Okay, I won't bother you. Anyway. Okay. First of all, it isn't just a matter of chance that Smith and Jones and others share their ideological beliefs. Note that the beliefs are false, right, among other things. So what even explains their convergence? Ideology seems to be rather an explanation of why people are under a collective illusion and act in ways that sustain justice. So ideology, I think, is supposed to do an explanatory role here. And it's not clear what uh, this account of shared belief, how that plays that explanatory role. Secondly. It's implausible that an ideology is so specific to manifest itself in the same beliefs in the members of the culture. Plausibly, even both sides of a disagreement may be ideological. Someone claiming that a particular action is chaste or slutty or ghetto, or one denying it, are both in the grip of an ideology. And third, ideology seems to carry some normative force for those who live in its shadow, and it conditions much more than belief. It tells us also how we ought to feel and act. Okay, so that, I think, sets some issues for the theory of ideology. How can we make sense of this? And what could ideology be other than a set of shared beliefs? So I'm gonna give here a rough summary of the dialectic as I see it going in the rest of the discussion, the rest of the paper, um, and then I'll get into the details. So, I think according to the dominant model in analytic social ontology, the social world consists of psychologically sophisticated individuals who form intentions and or commitments, conscious or unconscious, to act. Sometimes they act together or at least coordinate under conditions of common knowledge. We design practices for particular purposes and enact them for reasons, and when problems arise, we must have made a factual error or been wrong about our reasons. So take people at the social world, take people kind of like us, grown-ups with sophisticated beliefs, and then you have them interact with each other, maybe sometimes form we intentions and things like that, and whoa, there you've got the social world, right? I don't think so. But by the time we form beliefs, our practical consciousness and orientation has already been shaped by culture. We live and think within a cultural frame. So individuals in their cognition, I think, is social from square one. And so this is part of what the Balkan quote at the very beginning of the epigraph is supposed to be. So I'm going to argue that anyway, that this idea that the social world is sort of what happens when you get sophisticated individuals interacting with each other 
is an impoverished notion of the social world. And I'm going to say that, in fact, the, that we are much more deeply social beings. But you might complain, what is culture? Isn't it made up of the attitudes of individuals? Right? That's, that's what culture would seem to be. And so how can culture, if we go back to the original problem, how can culture, with just a set of attitudes, constrain and inform and constitute individuals in this way? So I'm going to then go on and talk a bit about uh, what I think the social world consists in. And I'm going to suggest that it's important to keep in mind three factors that make up social life. The individual agent, the cultural frame, and the material conditions. Roughly, individuals think and act within a cultural frame that shapes their relationship to the material conditions. However, the relations of dependency between these factors are complex and shifting. Culture frames, cultural frames shape individuals in their environment, yet individuals can also think and act outside of and in ways resistant to the cultural frame. And the material conditions can push back and destabilize cultural frames and the possibilities for agency, for example, in natural disasters. So it's good to think of there being this kind of triangle of agents, cultural frames, material conditions, or other kinds of material facts and such like that, that are constantly kind of trying to find some equilibrium. Okay, so let's go move on to the issue of um, how culture shapes cognition. So all cognition involves shortcuts, selection, and compartmentalization and we can't manage without it. In North America, I often make reference to the, the, the generic birds fly because most North Americans just rely on the fact that birds fly and don't think about birds who don't fly until they come to Australia and they're up in Queensland and there's a cassowary in the road or whatever it is and, and then they have to think about something else. So we rely on these generalizations um, and they're shortcuts. And you know, when you drive down the road and there's a bird in the road, you don't stop and think, oh my gosh, I better break fast because you, know, because you think the bird's gonna fly away and then sometimes it doesn't because it has a broken wing or whatever. But socialization shapes our cognition so that we're better able to coordinate and communicate. For example, ostension requires being able to narrow the range of possible reference. This is a kind of old you know, Chomskyan issue or lots of different kinds of issues. The problem of communication is going to be intractable if we don't have some already uh, narrowed range of possible reference that we're going to be uh, 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 interested in. And coordination requires that we attend to and respond to the right signals, filtering out the noise to do our part in the plan. So I've got to be able to tell you know, when you're moving your body, which part of your body is gesturing and which part of your body is not gesturing in order to make sense of it and to coordinate with you. Although correction or improvement of cognition is always possible, meaningful correction can't just be a matter of pointing out the fact that our thinking is limited or biased, since all thinking is limited in some sense biased. So we've got this problem. We're always going to have to rely on a narrowing of our perceptual, conceptual, um, attitudinal resources in order to make sense of each other and to get along. So on Jack Balkan's view, so I've mentioned Jack on, uh, on Monday. Jack Balkan is a legal theorist at Yale. Um, social life relies on a set of tools that culture provides us. He uses the term cultural software for the tools that are both public and internalized by individuals. So he says, to be sure, 
Beliefs can be tools of understanding and can be used to create new tools, but more important objects of study are cognitive mechanisms that produce beliefs and presumably other attitudes. Examples include the tendency to structure experience in terms of narratives, psychological methods of categorization, varieties of metaphoric and metonymic thinking, strategies for the reduction of cognitive dissonance, heuristics and biases employed in making judgments under uncertainty, and understanding by means of networks of conceptual oppositions of the form A is to B as C is to D. Now, it's important to emphasize, and I'm not going to continue using the word software because I think it has some unfortunate connotations, though it is useful a little bit. I'm going to use the term schema instead, that it can be used either for the abstract and public cultural codes or for the manifestation of these in individual cognitive mechanisms. So perhaps an analogy with word meaning, so there's lexical meaning that's public, it's out there, it's not in anybody's head, but then we internalize that lexical meaning, and there's such a thing as speaker meaning, etc. So we have uh, a model already in philosophy of these sort of public, external things, and the internalization of them in the mind. Now there are advantages to this vagueness for the codes are internalized in individual minds, and in somewhat different ways, but we're gonna to have to keep in mind a distinction between the cultural schemas and the psychological schemas. Individuals have cognitive autonomy, but autonomy of thought and action depends on the local cultural schemas, because we live and think within a cultural frame. Maybe it might be good to leave that door open because it's so stuffy in here. Maybe not. I wonder if we can hear Oh well, maybe not. I have a chair down here we can use the pocket. That one's open, thank you, whoever opened that one. Okay, so there are a variety of advantages to this approach. First, cognition is a process, so thinking is a process or practice that doesn't involve just static representation such as belief, and attention to culturally shaped cognitive <coughs> mechanisms helps explain cultural similarities and differences. So if you look in the back, there's a picture right back there with all the references, okay. We've got the cultural schemas, these are the public meetings right in the middle, and then there are resources, and when my view, you'll see we're going to talk about people who have like a key lecture might remember some of this, but a practice is going to be an enactment of the cultural schemas in response to the resource, right? But in order to do that, we've got to internalize these cultural schemas, that's the person on the right, and to accomplish certain tasks, attention, perception, categorization, memory, and we rely on concepts and schemas I'm using as a kind of placeholder that the cognitive scientists can help us fill in, and then those produce psychological attitudes and various kinds of dispositions. So then we act on the resources in a certain way, and then those, the division, the ways in which we act on the resources reinforces the cultural schemas. In this picture over here that looks really peculiar, these are gated communities and slums, and the gated communities, that big black box used to be a very fancy fence, like you know, like the curly cues and things, and for some reason it came out as a black box. But you know, for a gated community, that's not so bad. Black, you know, black screens in front of them are what they look like. And this is supposed to be slums with a torn up uh, fence in front of it. So anyway, so what we do is we have this practice, and we the schemas guide us to to distribute uh, things of value in different ways to different people. And then once you do that, that reinforces the schemas about how. Black people are all you know, dirty and slummy and things like this, and white people are all clean and tidy and whatever. Okay, you got the idea. All right, that's, the, that's that. Okay, so we're going back. 
to the, to the advantages to the approach. So, uh, that's so weird, okay. This is a bullet on the right column of two, the first bullet. The shared mechanisms are not just concerned with producing true beliefs, but result in various shared dispositions to perceive, have emotions, deliberate, and act in specific ways. So we've got these schemas, and they, they guide us in what we attend to, what we remember, um, how we interpret perception, you know, the things that we perceive and all of that. And they will also be such that there's going to be affective dimensions of them as well. So what we're afraid of, what we find appealing, those sorts of things. Those are guided by these shared mechanisms that are you know, prior to belief. So you've got, whoa, this is a big one, okay. So you've got your belief, your attitude bubble, there's all these propositions up here, but before you even get to it, that there's kind of filtering and, sh and shaping mechanisms or processes, and that's going to include things like having concepts, right? You know, conceptual, uh, you know, cognitive penetration and that sort of stuff of, of experience. Moreover, placing emphasis on culturally shaped cognitive mechanisms is friendly to an information processing model of cognition that's compatible with content externalism. Schemas are not representations that mediate our relationship to the world, but ways or habits of thinking. So these are often not you know, representations. They're kinds of a, a screening process or a filtering process or a shaping process that determines what's available to us to form beliefs about. It's not necessary to rely on collective intentionality or we attitudes to make sense of basic coordination, but this is enabled by shared cultural schemas. So, you know, we might want to have we intentions for something else, but if we are all filtering the same sort of stuff and we only see the same sorts of things in our environment, then it's going to be much easier for us to coordinate, right? Because, right, you don't see, you see my gesturing and hailing um, and that sort of thing, and, and the fact that we all know that that is the relevant thing to see means that we're going to be able to coordinate much better without we attitudes or something like that. Another set of advantages is that the same processes can take different forms because schemas are malleable and dynamic, and an individual's internalization of them may be idiosyncratic. And so this allows for resistant, resistance, critique, and disruptive experiences. So there are these cultural mechanisms, these cultural schemas. So these are the schemas, the cultural uh, schemas. And when we internalize them through our childhood and our experiences and things like that, we do so in slightly different ways. Just like their speaker meaning can have this kind of variation um, uh, on the lexical meaning of a term. And so this is going to be really good because what we want is a capacity for resistance. So I, for example, some of these cultural schemas, they've gotten planted in me in weird ways, right? And so I'm trying to resist them all the time. And, and that possibility is, supposed, is a good thing. It's a good thing, because usually these are really bad. Okay, not always. Okay, um, moreover, the coordination of cognitive mechanisms is produced and reinforced by material prompts, signs, symbols, and their public meanings. Uh, traffic lights and traffic stops and things like that. Um, cultural schemas are installed in individuals through ordinary messy processes of socialization, and this explains how dominant patterns of thought are entrenched, but also allows for these individual differences. <coughs> Moreover, even if I 
have my own special way of understanding certain things or filtering certain experiences, I will know that these are the dominant ones. So even those who are resistant will be able to tell. Like I know I might have a, a, a slightly different way of using the term woman than many people, but I know what the dominant way, that what the dominant way is. And finally, treating cognitive structures and processes as tools supports a kind of pragmatism about concepts and conceptual change without pragmatism about truth. So you can be a pragmatist about the concepts because these are the sorts of things that are filtering what we can form beliefs about. And it's you say, look, we need to change these concepts. That's not to say we can be pragmatist about that without saying that what's true and false is a matter of pragmatic factors. OK, so that's the picture of, of cognition that I think is really well suited to an analysis of ideology. So now I'm going to say a bit about ideology that some of you may have heard before, and apologies for that. So beliefs and other propositional attitudes may be tools, but they're downstream from the tools that Bal Balkan cares most about. By the time we form beliefs, our practical consciousness or orientation has already been shaped by culture. Socialization has us internalize a set of cultural schemas in order to become participants in practice. So I think that what happens, these get formed through socialization, where socialization is, among other things, getting learning how to perform a practice and how to do it fluently. So what you do, we're trying to coordinate after all, so you do these that will enable you to tell what your role is in the practice and what the signals are and what the noise is, things like that. So what is a practice? Practices can be more or less explicit, transparent, rule-governed, intentional. On the less explicit intentional end, practices are certain regularities or patterns in behavior that are guided by shared schemas acquired through primitive forms of social mentality. So at the very basic end, you've got patterns, and our patterns aren't guided by beliefs, but they're by, guided by these primitive forms of mentality, of, of imitation, recognizing what others are doing, tracking what uh, their eye movements and sort of things like that. Um, and that will include some forms of cognition, affect, and experience. That is, they're going to be guided by thinking and feeling that has been shaped by contact with others who are tacitly taken to have goals and pursue them. And this is a low-level stuff, not at the level of mind reading. Infants engage with adults, non-human animals engage with each other, and humans engage with non-human animals in these kind of social practices. So yeah, you don't have, I do it with my dog, right? My dog doesn't have very sophisticated thoughts, but we engage in practices together, and we, we coordinate with each other, and we do so in ways that depend on there already being some kind of shaping of, like, when I say sit, he knows, ah, that was a command, right? Instead of when I say telephone, he doesn't know that's a command. Okay. So on the rationalistic end of the, the spectrum, the patterns in behavior are guided by highly sophisticated norms of social cognition and intentional agency, but that depends on the more basic shaping of our interaction. Okay, so in general terms, a practice has two interdependent components, the schemas that shape experience and action, and then you're going to have the resources, uh, resources, these are the things of value that we are trying to distribute in some way or coordinate around <clears throat> or produce. And so what we do is we internalize the schemas and then we behave in ways that are uh, uh, responding to the resources. 
those are, this is a practice. Okay. Um, moreover, networks of practices constitute social structures. So an ideology, on my view, is the cultural technique of an unjust or bad social structure. That is, it's the web of cultural schemas that are the constitutive parts of the structure's practices. So you've got practice one and practice two and practice three, and each one has its own kind of schema, well, and its resources. I shouldn't have put it that way, that doesn't look right. Oh gosh, okay. This is practice one, this is practice two, and this is practice three, and each one has its schema uh, and its resources, da 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 da. And then these together are a structure, but then the schemas, these schemas are going to be the cultural uh, techne of the structure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a metaphysician, really. I mean, I act sometimes like I'm a social theorist, but really, I do metaphysics. Okay, so, and metaphysics requires pictures. You can't do metaphysics without pictures. Okay, so an ideology can be bad because it prevents us from evaluating um, things correctly or because it <coughs> distributes what is valuable unjustly. There are, however, cultural techniques that are not ideological, at least in principle. And I think that an example might be Cohen's, Jerry Cohen's egalitarian technique. Okay, so you've got these, if this structure is bad or unjust, then you've got a bad structure is going to be ideologically driven. driven. And what you have is these schemas, they can go bad in lots of ways. They can get us to ignore things of value or value things that aren't really valuable. They can get us to distribute resources in ways that aren't fair or unjust. Right, so there's a lot of complications here that I'm trying to leave open about how we might want to elaborate this. So, to go back to Tommy's idea about racism, he said racism was an ideology and ideology is a set of beliefs. I'm like way gone from that, I hope you know, <laughs> I've noticed. So, but so on my view, and this is the last bullet on the bottom of first column of three, those unjust practices and institutions guided by or formed by an ideology or ideological formations. So in my view, racism, sexism, etc., is not simply an ideology, it's an ideological formation. It's constituted by an interconnected web of unjust social practices that unjustly disadvantage certain racial groups. The broad structure consists of connected practices such as residential segregation, police brutality, bias, hiring, wage inequality, educational disadvantage, etc., and I think those aren't random practices but are connected by a racist technique. So you've got all these practices and you could you know, make them even more in a very minute level, micro level practices, but you know, even just taking a kind of macro level practices, you know, police brutality, housing segregation, educational biases of various kinds, they have a racist technique that guides them. And that racist technique is the ideology. And the techne is a kind of know-how, right? It's not just a set of beliefs. It's going to be the set of schemas and filters and such in here that are, that are the, the precondition for belief. And yeah, it will also result in some beliefs. So there, you know, races exist, uh, or whites are great. <laughs> Sorry. Um, those might be beliefs that are produced also by these, this, these, te these uh, cultural techniques. 
<clears throat> okay, so that's my theory of ideology. So let's now uh, recap and see where we are. I've argued so far that ideology can't be just a set of shared beliefs, but should be understood as a cultural technique. But just to assert that there's a cultural technique does not really tell us how it differs from the set of shared beliefs or cognitive processes. So that was Tommy's view, a set of shared beliefs, and then you say, okay, okay, okay. Maybe it's not just beliefs, but maybe it's a set of shared processes, something like this. So you look at, you say, okay, you've got all the people, and you look in their minds, and you find that they all have these same uh, mechanisms, and you say, okay, shared, the shared mechanisms, that is what it is. Where I'm saying, no, 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 it's these cultural schemas over here. Or I think that there's a difference there, and it's not clear yet what the difference is. So now I want to talk about what the difference is. Okay, but just to assert, okay, there's pressure to say more due to the appeal of methodological individualism. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about methodological individualism. Social explanations come in different forms, and controversies rage over their value and legitimacy. For example, must macro phenomena such as patterns of or regularities in the social domain be explained ultimately in terms of the behavior of individuals? And then what sort of explanation should we give of individual behavior? Is causal explanation required, or should we aim to interpret or rationalize behavior? So if you think that you've just got people who are behaving in regular ways, and then you think, well, people behave in regular ways because they have similar attitudes, then to explain the regularities in behavior, you explain the regularities in their attitudes, right? That's and then what you do is you, you give some kind of rationalizing explanation and say, well, they all behave the same way because they all have the same attitudes because those are the rational attitudes to have in these situations. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so methodological individualism is not a single thesis or principle. Ontological individualism is the view that the social world is constituted by individuals and relations between them. The slogan is, there's nothing in the social world over and above individuals and their relations. Explanatory individualism is the view that explanation of social phenomena must be individualistic. We should explain social phenomena in terms of the actions and attitudes of individuals. So I just gave you some story about why explanatory individualism might have some plausibility if you accept ontological individualism. You know, take for example the fact that crime increases in the summer is just a fact about the actions of individuals in the summer. Okay, they're all committing crimes in the summer. These actions are the result of a pattern of attitudes that people have when the weather is warmer. But then the target should be to explain why people start having those attitudes in the summertime. One way to do it is to say the rational choice way, but we might also explain the pattern by pointing to predictable biases, the regular presence of misleading evidence, the constraints imposed by social imaginaries, the fact that it's really hot and people have a hard time keeping their temper when they're hot, things like that, that result in attitudes that are confused, mistaken, or irrational. So you might have here irrational choice theory, not just rational choice theory. Now I reject both ontological and explanatory individualism. However, on the face of it, an explanation of injustice in terms of ideology looks pretty similar to the story an individualist might provide, right? Because what you do is you just say, look, ideology is what explains this pattern of attitudes, which explains the pattern of behavior, right? That's the issue. 
So why are black men systematically convicted of crimes they didn't commit? Judges and juries demonstrate a pattern of biased attitude due to the tools they use to understand the social world. And this results in a pattern of unjust action. But is that kind of explanation adequate? I'm going to argue it's not. OK, I've got a lot to do here. Anyway, it would appear that the site where cultural technique does its work is in the interface between culture and agency. For example, I don't know if you know that Tom Robbins, oh, there's a book to kill a mockingbird that every primary school child in the United States has to read. And Tom Robinson is a black man who's accused of raping a white woman. And um, Atticus Finch is his defense, is the legal, provides his legal defense. There's a brilliant legal defense, but he's convicted anyway. And the suggestion is, among, this has been a, a topic for much debate and discussion and interpretation, is that the judges and the jury, the fact is that the woman was beaten, was raped by her father. And in fact, she was attracted to Tom Robinson. And so there was, uh, but then she turned against him, etc. And so when, when the, uh, def, the uh, Atticus Finch made the case that she was actually attracted to Tom Robinson, and it was her father that did it, the judge and the jury, like, their minds exploded. And they, they couldn't understand that. And so they convicted him anyway, even though there was not good evidence. OK, so for example, considering Tom Robinson's case in To Kill a Mockingbird, the assumption that a white woman would not, could not be attracted to a black man is part of the culture. It's presupposed in literature and news reporting. It's used to rationalize laws and practices of segregation. Just as To Kill a Mockingbird is not identical with any token book or telling, likewise, such anti-miscegenation scripts are not identical with any token enactment or belief. So you might first say, oh, well, yeah, we've got these token scripts and such. But really, we're talking about the types, these types up here. Now, I don't think that that's going far enough. That says, yeah, there is this thing, the, the type and not the token. But that's not enough to really destabilize individualism. So what does this mean for the individualism of social imaginary explanations? One might claim that the cultural scripts are crucial to the explanation of how judges and juries act. And yet, because the scripts are not individuals or attitudes of individuals or relations between them, but are broad, publicly accessible phenomena, it defeats explanatory individualism. This would say culture is essential to the explanation and is a distinct non-individualist explanatory factor. You might. I don't think that's very promising. The problem, as you might guess, is that it's not clear how to define or explain culture, including the norms, scripts, symbols, etc., except in terms of the attitudes of individuals. So remember, we're here saying all there really is in culture is individuals and their attitudes. Yeah, you've got some scripts up here. But they're just the types of things that people have, right? They're just types of beliefs and types of cognitive mechanisms and such. And that doesn't really go far enough. But what is culture? So I'm not going to answer that question very fully. But I think that philosophers haven't spent enough time thinking about it, what culture is. Because culture is an essential part of our lives, because we are social beings. So we need to figure out what culture is. And people have been trying to do that uh, in the social sciences for a long time. And I think they need philosophers to help them out. OK. Above all, culture is about meanings. And for something to have a meaning depends on our having a systematic way of reading or interpreting it. There's something right about the idea that culture depends on us, and more specifically, that it depends on our attitudes. 
The ontological individualist will read this dependence on our attitudes as constitutive. So insofar as a cultural techne explanation simply brings culture into the story, it isn't clear how they disrupt individualistic assumptions. However, the way in which culture depends on our attitudes is not a simple matter. Culture is not just a collection of attitudes, right? There's not a constitution relation there, so it's like part-whole relation. That's crazy. Okay. Anyway, that doesn't work. Culture includes, among other things, dance performances and rituals and techniques of food production and clothing styles and such. Okay, granted, you might think of those as consequences of our attitudes, but no, they're material things, right? Bodies and rituals and objects and things like that. So culture isn't just a set of attitudes. That sort of is supposed to destabilize this idea that there's a composition relation there. Our topic, however, is the cultural technase. These are the cultural schemas, not culture in general. And it's more plausible that those are just something about uh, sets of attitudes. So let's return to the sociocultural frame that is only a part of culture. Is the cultural technique composed of individual attitudes or processes in a way that's compatible with individualism? So I've argued that a cultural technique can't be understood in terms of what most people believe or the attitudes most people have. Remember, the worry was that culture is a source of our attitudes, not just a generalization or abstraction. And it has a kind of normative force for us. So here are the questions that I'm going to briefly comment on. <clears throat> what is the ontology of the cultural techne? Is it just an aggregation of individual attitudes, even if we want to add more primitive cognitive effective and somatic processes? Are explanations that make reference to cultural techniques reducible to explanations in terms of attitudes of individuals? And how is the social imaginary, I should have switched that, the cultural techne a source of attitudes, and does it make normative claims on us? All right. Language is going to be relevant. So I'm going to skip a little bit quickly over the next paragraph and just say language is going to be relevant. Consider marriage. If you believe that marriage, by definition, is between one man and one woman, then that's going to be a kind of cult. That's going to be a concept here that, that filters what you can see or experience or believe to be a marriage. And so that's going to be the kind of thing that we're worried about when we're worried about an ideology. The concept of marriage might be one of the things that is ideological, I think, is ideological. OK, so we're going to talk a little bit about language, and then I'm going to extrapolate from language. How does linguistic meaning depend on our attitudes? So we're worried about meanings, right? Meanings, cultural schemas. Now we're going to talk for a minute about meanings. How do these depend on attitudes? Well, I don't think they do. Um, they do, but not completely. So following an example from Burge, the meaning of arthritis isn't just what most people believe it is. Most of us might think mistakenly that arthritis is a disease and occur in one's thigh, but they would be wrong. Terms have their meaning within a knowledge economy that typically grants some authority over their meaning and deny it to others. Doctors, not common sense, are the authorities about arthritis. Moreover, doctors have authority over the meaning of arthritis, not arbitrarily, but because of the role arthritis plays in a representational tradition that serves certain interests and functions and certain practices. And the purpose of the term is to identify a range of ailments, all of which cause inflammation of the joints. 
So the meaning of arthritis here, for example, is not just what most people believe it is. It's not constituted by a set of beliefs or other, other cognitive processes. But the meaning of arthritis is not even what a privileged set of doctors think it means. But the representational tradition sets a range of criteria for successful application of the term, including a set of paradigm instances, a characteristic phenomenal, phenomenal profile, an explanatory role, a physical manifestation, and practical consequences. What arthritis means will depend on what actually serves our representational and practical interests best. This is not something known a priori or by stipulation. It's something that doctors work hard to figure out, and they can get it wrong. They have gotten it wrong for most, most of history. So there are two lessons here, I think. First, meanings aren't constituted by and don't just depend on attitudes, but also on social relations and structures that shape, authorize, and disseminate attitudes. So right, <clears throat> these meanings are not like popping into our heads, right? They depend on structures already, the structures of medicine and the structures of all of this, the structures of our social life, what counts as what means what. In fact, social relations and broader social structures provide the context within shared attitudes and meanings can be created. Mind shaping through participation and practices is a necessary part of entering a world that is cognized in ways that make sense to others. Meaning systems depend on capacities of co-regulation. In Tad Zawitsky's words, distinctively human social cognition is a group accomplishment involving simultaneously interpretive and regulative frameworks that function to shape minds, which these frameworks can then be used to easily and usefully interpret. So this goes back to the, the problem I mentioned at the very beginning. You can't do without a social frame in order to coordinate, but that social frame is going to be uh, a, it presupposes ways in which we are going to be coordinating to start with. So second, meanings, this is a second message from the arthritis, second message from the arthritis example. Meanings are not just a matter of how people embedded in complex social networks think either. So meanings aren't just about what the doctors think, because language points us beyond what we know. One of its fundamental purposes is to organize us in relation to how things are in the world. Think again of the arthritis case. Joint inflammation has possibly been a source of pain forever. However, for much of that history, there's been only a poor grasp of the condition. Determining what arthritis is requires attention to a complex interplay between the range of physical conditions, the variety of disabling effects on humans, the capacities for doctors to treat those effects, etc. This interplay is not, an exception, it's not exceptional in this case, for language is not simply a tool for expressing thoughts, but for co-regulation around things that matter, the resources. We might note again the basic factors that make up the social world, the cultural frame, the material conditions, and the individual agent. All three form a self-sustaining system that organize us as they together constitute meanings. This is compatible with the global supervenience of meaning without commitment to either ontological or explanatory individualism. So culture is not made up of attitudes. And we don't explain culture just by reference to people's attitudes or the people themselves. We explain it by reference to, here is where the fresh water is, et cetera, et cetera. OK. So wrapping up, sort of. 
I propose that we extrapolate from the previous section's discussion of language to address the questions concerning cultural technes. A crucial feature of a cultural techne is that it's one part of a system that functions, and not always successfully, to regulate our interactions in a domain and cannot be understood apart from its role in that system. Just as the handlebars of a bike can be removed and considered on their own, in order to understand what handlebars are, you must first understand their function in riding a bike. Handlebars are not just an aggregation of metal particles in a certain shape. So meanings <coughs> are not just an aggregation of attitudes uh, that have particular contents. You have to understand or attitudes or these whatever mechanisms. Um, it's not just that the, the cultural meanings are thought, it's just a set of or a collection of these. Because what you have to understand is that they're a functional part of this whole system that involves the agent and the cultural, the cultural frame uh, and the resources, the stuff in the world. Okay, so regarding those first two questions, what are, what are cultural techniques? What's the ontology of them and how do, they, how do they have normative force for us? How do they function in an explanatory way? The cultural techne is not then just a collection of attitudes or even a collection of cognitive mechanisms, but the cultural dimension of the local social regulation system. This is going to be that system. When internalized by individuals, it provides tools for psychosomatic self-regulation that enables fluent coordination with others, and it also produces different forms of subjectivity. Because of its regulative function, it has normative force. Yet insofar as it regulates our interactions in ways that are problematic, morally, epistemically, and political, politically, it's an apt target for critique. So it might organize us to distribute or produce resources in ways that are unjust. The other question was the explanatory question. Explanations drawing on cultural techniques that are not just drawing on sets of attitudes, but referencing this coordination system that derives from and is embedded in and sustains social practices. A coordination system of this kind involves individuals and their attitudes, but also much more as it creates and constitutes these social structures. So you're trying to explain what's going on with culture, and you're going to be making reference to this whole system like that. For example, it will include all sorts of artifacts, stop signs, traffic lights, etc., parts of the world that have value for us. For example, we coordinate in gathering, cooking, and eating food. We coordinate in caring for the ill and treating their diseases. Food, disease, and medicine are all parts of our practices and are what, in fact, we coordinate to manage, produce, and distribute. So as I understand cultural techniques, they don't just mediate between culture and agency, but between culture, agency, and the material world. So we started with an idea that the cultural techne was supposed to sort of <clears throat> kind of explain how agents internalize the things in the culture, et cetera, like that. But really what we come back to is a relationship between agents, <coughs> the cultural frame, and the resources that have value, and this frame teaches us how to recognize the value or teaches us sometimes how to miss that value. Okay, I've argued that cognition is socially embedded. This uh, has implications for epistemology and epistemic critique, and here are some of the lessons. Remember at the beginning I was saying 
Why do you need a special epistemology for ideology, right? That was the, the starting point, because if ideology is just a set of false, set of false beliefs, epistemology is good to go, right? And that was what Tommy's view is. Tommy's view is epistemology is a set of false or, or unwarranted beliefs, so just criticize the beliefs. But in my view, that's not what ideology is. And ideology is a real problem, right? It's part of what makes our world so horrible, right? So here are some of the lessons, I think, for epistemology. First, epistemology of ignorance. Ideology critique must attend to the filtering and distortion of information and the knowledge that we lack. These filtering things you know, prevent us from noticing certain facts, from taking certain moral facts to be relevant, et cetera, et cetera. Epistemology of aptness. Ideology critique must question the aptness of our terms, concepts, and cultural schemas. Ideology's home is in our ways of framing and parsing the world. So there's a lot there on hermeneutic injustice and such. Integrating the normative inquiry. The practices in which ideology functions creates the social world. So we must look beyond truth to evaluate our beliefs. So how we, how we understand the world is going to, because we then act on the world with those understandings, produce new facts. And so we have to be careful about the facts that we produced. And sometimes you produce a fact and then have a belief about it that's true, but the fact that you produced is bad. And because our beliefs are the output of mind shaping, we must also investigate the cultural formation of cognitive processes and their social function in a kind of socio-historical context. In short, social epistemology is not just about individuals and what knowers can share, but also about the construction of knowers through social and cultural practices. To ignore this is to allow ideology to do its work unnoticed and unimpeded. Moreover, critique can't simply challenge belief, but must involve challenges to those practices through which we ourselves become the vehicles and the embodiments of ideology. I think it's made up of individuals or the physical facts. Oh, I see. So it's 
so, so there's a distinction between So composition. So I think, well, so part of this issue is going to have to do with grounding questions, right? And so there's this tendency for people to think of the social as just clusters of lower level things, right? They're just, it's a part whole relationship. We don't think that a lot of other things that supervene on the on the lower level are are clusters of the lower level things. At least I don't think so, right? I wouldn't say that the beautiful is a cluster of physical things. I mean, now maybe other people do, but I think that there it could be it could be supervene on it could be grounded in without it being a cluster of them. So you would accept even that the social is grounded. I don't know. I don't want to talk about grounding if that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's not really my language of, of grounding. I did, all I wanted to say there was that the relation of supervenience is really weak, right? And you don't get the kind of ontological dependence or the explanatory dependence that usually the methodological individualists assume. And first of all, there's two reasons why not. First of all, because they will usually assume that it supervenes on just these facts, you know, the ones about the individuals and their minds, right? And that's certainly not true, right? Because there's the world, right? That is the physical world much beyond that because the social includes like physical objects and all that sort of stuff, right? And so it doesn't just supervene on, on this stuff, I'm an externalist, unless, you know, I don't think that, it, that it's fair to become an externalist about the mind and then say, oh, it's, it's really just supervenes on the mind because you're an externalist about the mind. That would be weird, right, wouldn't it? Anyway, anyway, I think it would be weird. So what I want to say is that it, it, there's much more that the, that the social depends or the social supervenes on than just individuals and their attitudes. And then also I want to say that this notion of this relation of supervenience isn't one of part whole. Right? So you, and that's what a lot of the methodological individualists kind of think. So we intentions, those are when you get the social, because there's kind of these two make one, and so now we've got two we's, so, you know, I's become we's, and then you've got the, and I think, really? That's, that's so not necessary, and I mean, maybe it's an important part of the social world, but it's not necessary to have sociality. Does that help? Yeah. Um, suppose I agree that uh, with sort of practices first, and that as far as we, as far as we care about something, um, a way that sets of ideas can be systematically wrong in ideology, either unjust or mistaken, that you have to look at um, you know, social structures, uh, and that you're not going to, you know, keeping track of that means not necessarily focusing on what individuals believe. And suppose I think that all the going forms of social ontology that appeal to um, shared intentions from individual intentions or forms of individual pleasure don't work. Um, but it could still be the case that for all that, you could still think that there's a more sort of subtle way of characterizing how culture emerges from sets of beliefs such that you think that for individuals in a group, uh, they have dispositions to respond in certain ways, you know, with a schema, if and only if some proportion of the others are disposed to respond in that way. And then some members are sending it, some authority, trusted members, or, you know, um, celebrities or whatever, or authority figures you know, are sending a signal such that that's the salient one, right? So the social dynamics could work out so that there's a lot of collective dynamics within the group that has the feel of 
the kind of upper level stuff you're talking about, but that doesn't, that you, that you could still explain that all in terms of sets of attitudes where the attitudes are specified in terms of um, their relations to other attitudes within the group. So I mean, so that seems like something intermediate. I'm asking whether so, you're amenable to so what something I'm, like that, which you so might end up calling in the end some kind of reduction in some sense, um, but uh, it would be consistent with a lot of the sort of cultural dynamics that you're trying to preserve. Okay, I'm not sure I got all the bits of it, and I think I might have needed to go to Kenny's talk today in order to fully answer it, which I couldn't go to for other reasons, because it might depend on what you think belief is. And so let's take that they're going to be sort of belief one at one level and then belief two at another level. And belief one is just going to be what you get from a kind of intentional stance. So you can say the thermostat believes that it's too hot in here, and so it's going to turn the air conditioning on, right? There's not much in terms of... of of uh, a full psychological you know, belief with modes of presentation and all that kind of stuff. But then there's going to be this other level where there's full modes of presentation and all of that kind of stuff that you might get. So I don't want to take a stand on, on that. Um, I think that we might want to be saying, well, there's some basic notion of I have to see you as pursuing goals and having ways of pursuing those goals and such at this kind of lower level in order for there to get con some kind of coordination going with you, right? And that that may be at some lower level, but I don't think you need beliefs at these higher levels to get the coordination going, right? You can coordinate at this level. I meant to concede, I meant to concede that point and say at whatever level you want to, whatever set of attitude you want to focus on, the attitude could, it sort of could be explained as an attitude that's sensitive to the distribution of attitudes within the group. So oh, sure, I, it's going to be we're very sensitive to the attitudes that, in the group. As long as you had sort of attitudes of that kind, so you have a group in a population and the people, the individuals display it just in case they, the, the other member, enough members of the group also display it. Um, if, and you know, not if enough don't, but if higher percentage do, then. Right, but then what I'm asking, so what the problem is, is that what, what, are the, what are the concepts in terms of which those beliefs are framed? Yeah, I meant to, I'll give you that. I'll just okay, give me whatever, that. Yeah, whatever, okay. whatever psychological... But then, of course, there's going want. to be higher-level stuff that once you get off the ground, yeah, like philosophers, mostly what we care about is what other philosophers believe. And so we're going to form all kinds of complicated social networks and, and prestige kind of systems and status, all that kind of stuff, just taking into account what other people believe, right? So I'm not denying that. What I'm saying, though, is that, that that those sorts of things depend on there already being a kind of form of sociality that gave us the tools to have beliefs in the first place. And so it's, it's not just, it's not, you can't explain the social as if those just popped into existence out of the blue. Is that missing? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, however far, however far back you want to push it, I'm suggesting that at that level, you could take the individual's attitude and define them in relation to, you know, properties of distribution of attitudes with the groups, and then that could be both individual. You know, it could be a sets of attitudes among individuals, but they're but they would have relational kinds of dynamics. As far back as you want to go, you'd get something um, that could be more individualistic, but have all the sort of group level properties that you want. But it's an abstract suggestion. I guess I'm just asking. Okay, I need. I think what I need, and I, what I'm being pushed on, is more of an example. 
of it because I think that we organize. So even if you take uh, eye coordination with infants and parents, they they coordinate around things outside, right, of them, the, the world. So you know they look. Parents make eye contact with the infant and then look at the object to indicate to the infant that this is the object that you're talking about. So there's a common world out there that mediates the the uh, the coordination of these two beings at this very low level. And so I'm not sure how we're just getting, oh, I'm only going to coordinate on the basis of what the other believes. I'm, well, I'm just not getting it. So I, we'll have to talk more. Hi, thank you. Um, <clears throat> So I just wanted to slow down a little bit on the on the third point about culture. Mm -hmm. I thought, um, I thought I, you know, you made me think a lot about another person that talks about culture, but critically Adorno, mm -hmm. and and especially in the academy. And perhaps he's talking about one mass of capital, but he also has this problem with philosophers that have produced uh, the, the horrors of, of Auschwitz and, and Nazism. And so he's got this problem where, on one side, be silent in the academy is to perpetuate the atrocities, and to act is to reproduce the atrocities of culture. And so I wonder how this kind of paradox of Adorno, uh, this, this, this place of philosophy, sits within your version of culture. Okay, so, so on my notion of culture, we start with these these schemas that guide. So, so. Um, Yes, culture has many different meanings. So what I'm thinking is that the cultural technique is that psychosomatic know-how, well, the internalized version of it is the psychosomatic know-how that enabled us to participate fluently in social practices. So um, as I gave an example on Monday, I mean, all of you knew how to come to a talk and what to do during the talk. And you came in, you had a psychosomatic technique for how to attend a philosophy talk. You came in and quietly sat down and took the handout and then didn't jump up during the talk and say, that sounds crazy to me, and you know, do things like that because you have this psychosomatic technique that you didn't even have to think about. So that's the initial level of schemas and techniques is that we engage fluently in the world um, and so we have these practical orientations to get us through the world, the social world. Okay, so that's the cultural technique that I'm talking about. Now, there is a role for philosophers and people who promote religion and such to articulate or justify the particular cultural techniques because the techniques are the, are the embodied practical orientations. That's in, the, in one tradition in the theory of ideology. Ideology is a practical consciousness, right? So then you get, what you get is the cultural Techne, and you get then the explicit articulation uh, and rationalization uh, of the particular cultural technique. That's a lot of what philosophers do. They try to take our cultural technique and make it explicit and rationalize it, etc., etc., like that. Define the terms, you know, give us our local norms and all of that kind of stuff. And part of why I'm interested in this being a, a way of thinking about ideology is I think criticizing this stuff does very little to change the social reality, right? So when the philosopher, when I think Adorno might be talking about the philosopher, the philosopher says, look, 
no, I'm going to interact with people at this level. I'm going to criticize their explicit ideology, or I'm going to continue to do it. All of that is kind of missing the point, because that stuff at the at the attitudinal level is is really not very often engaging how we interact with each other on the interpersonal level. Now it can. I'm not saying it never does. Again, philosophers are pretty good at being driven by reasons and being able to like become vegetarian because they know that there's tremendous suffering caused by industrial agriculture. You know, most people, you tell them that, and they would never become vegetarian. Philosophers can, you know? So there's some work up here that philosophy can do, but it doesn't really change the world. Is that helpful? Can I follow up? So I think that's uh, an almost problem with mass culture. But in this the scenario that I'm trying to lay out here, is asking the question, what does the culture do when one is explicit with the cultural techno that you just outlined? I mean, there's ways of reading the corner. You work with the movement. You go and you find the movement that is trying to change the, the, the cultural techno. And you, you ally yourselves with the movement. And you work with that movement to disrupt the belief that marriage is between one man and one woman. You go and talk to the members of the Supreme Court or whatever, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, and you say, okay, I am your ally here. You want to disrupt this conceptual repertoire. Let me help you. Um, I can talk to the elites so they'll listen to me. You and the movement, you can't. So I will use my authority and privilege and power in order to, to disrupt these assumptions so that we can get the practice to change and so that can then you know, have a, hopefully a snowball effect. And so I think that what philosophers can do is, is work with others who are better equipped to understand what these schemas are and how they interact in the, sort of the, the semiotics or the grammar of our culture and, and provide tools and resources for, for the movements. Going back 
yeah. from there, from no. these uh, resources here. It's supposed to be there. No, but I love them. So there is a kind of a system. There's an equilibrium that gets formed here. So it's kind of sit, yeah. And it is niche construction. I mean, I totally believe that in what you've got to, and it's very, it tends to be stable. And it sort of scaffolds the mind of the individual in many, many ways. Yeah, it scaffolds the mind. And then that scaffolding of the individual, they enact it, it creates a difference in the world, that then they think, oh my god, that's just the way the world is. And then that reinforces the schemas, that then they internalize again, and then it comes right back. So I completely agree with you. Sorry. That's oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so putting aside the metaphysics of, of, of those Putting aside the metaphysics. Um, <laughs> because I don't like it. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, so just uh, the, the picture of epistemology you drew, which you rubbed out half of it, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Um, so, 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 so that's the picture where you have the head. Yeah, yeah, I got that head. I know where you mean. And the head. And then the, the picture you've got is that there's a filter. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I'm not really fan of epistemology, a picture of epistemology which goes like that. And so, so, so I'm kind of trying to invite you to convince me that I'm wrong to reject a, a view like this. So, so, so one of the problems that I don't quite understand uh, how you can explain by a picture like that is that presumably you believe that ideologies can change. Yeah. So, so, so presumably, it's not just that the filter happens to change, but you can change the filter as well. And I don't know that how under the picture you can explain the, the, the control you might have over the filter. So I think that, I mean, another part of the picture is that if someone comes to convince me that races don't exist, um, then, which I don't believe, I do believe races exist, but if someone were to convince me of that, I mean, I don't believe they're biological, right, but anyway, then, <coughs> then what I would do would be to try and override uh, what I was experiencing, right? Like Stephen Colbert. I don't see race. I don't know if you know Stephen Colbert. Have you ever watched see How many people have ever heard of Stephen Colbert? Okay, okay, good. You know, he doesn't see race, right? And so you would try to do that. You know, I don't see race. And so you would try to, so there's feedback here as well. Yes, so the question is how, how, what, what's the nature of that arrow that has to be? Because, uh, you, you sound sounds like you're saying that there's a causal uh, link that you can have from the top of your head to the filter. And I don't quite understand what what that what this kind of causal link that can be. So think of James saying, Okay, I don't believe I mean not James, um Pascal saying I don't you know, I ought to believe in God. So what I do is I go to church and I pray, right? So that is a belief that gets me to participate in a set of practices that changes the filters. And that's how we do it a lot. You know, you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, you do this, you start, you say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, I, I want to stop eating so much sugar. And so what you do is you develop a new practice that when you go by the bakery, you look the other way, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I mean, you develop, you start engaging in different practices, and then you go for long enough without sugar that you don't even miss it anymore, right? We do this all the time. We develop, we come up with ideas that, that change our behavior, and that 
then affects what we notice or what we don't notice. Even what we taste. You taste, if you haven't had sugar for a month and then you taste something sweet, it's overpoweringly sweet. And, and so that will affect all kinds of aspects of your experience and things like that. Yeah, so I think this is related to something I may have asked when you were in Texas uh, yeah. a few months ago. And uh, uh, sometimes you're talking about uh, this ideology in techne as uh, just the sorts of skills and scaffolding and so on that we need to interact with the world and that can take many different forms some of which are going to be somewhat pernicious in some ways. And then sometimes you seem to be talking as though ideology is always a negative thing. It always needs to be resisted and changed. And, right. uh, um, and uh, uh, the latter sort of talk um, at times almost makes it sound like you think maybe we could get rid of this stuff and just see the world directly, but that doesn't yeah. seem likely. And so I'm just trying to figure out what is the uh, right way to think about these. So right, so I think that in response to your question of Texas, I came up with this other way, this kind of curly cue that I'll try out on you. Okay, so so when I'm talking about a cultural technique, remember it's the it's the whole set of schemas. It's not just a particular schema for a particular practice, and then it's at this level that we have to evaluate the the schemas. You can't evaluate them on a kind of case by case basis. And the example I brought on Monday is that you have, you know, this rectangular city, and you want to, you have to swim, uh, enough money for six swimming pools, and so you, you put the swimming pools like that, and you go, yes, I'm, you know, so egalitarian, um, uh, but and in some cities that would be the way to do it, but in other cities it wouldn't be, depending on what the other practices are. If down here is the slums where there nobody has a pool and it's really hot because of all the concrete, and up here everyone has their own swimming pool. This would be an unjust schema as a, as a rule or whatever, but you can only evaluate it in light of its role with all of these other practices that it's embedded with, so like housing segregation, uh, economic exploitation, and all of those sorts of things. So what I'm wanting to suggest is that the idea that you can't evaluate a schema in isolation because, and some of the schemas will be very liberatory in some contexts and very bad in other contexts, because you have to see them kind of more holistically in relation to these practices that are contingent, right? And so the whole evaluation of the techne is going to be very contingent on how it's functioning in a much more in a much broader. Is that responsive to what you're saying? Uh, I think partly, and I think, uh, but I think some of what I was also wondering about was the uh, uh, the extent to which you're using the term ideology as inherently negative. Yeah. Yeah, so what I want to say is that a cultural technique is inevitable. We need them, we can't yeah. do without them. Um, and an ideology, there's going to be degrees of perniciousness of an ideology. And so, and whether we can get beyond, this was a question that someone asked me on Monday as well, can you ever, is it really possible ever to have a, a non-ideological technique? All I want to say is some are better than others. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'd be happy if we kept moving in the better direction.
Well, I think that language is part is going to be uh, usually a, a part of a cultural technique. Well, I guess it seems that I'm more interested in the, in, I mean, I guess if you think of speaking a language as an embodied practice, um, <coughs> then knowledge of the language is going to enable you to be fluent in the, in the language. Yeah, I go there, but I don't think, I'm more interested in the ways in which particular linguistic tools serve non-communicative purposes, like to organize us our, in our distribution of things of value and things like that. So yeah, you could see it as language as being a kind of a cultural technique, but I'm, it's, it's a kind of special one. Yeah, that's what I, but I, I wouldn't didn't want to deny that, I guess. Is that what you had two examples? Uh, that one was uh, poverty systems. So what kind of systems? Poverty systems. Oh, yeah. Um, so in, you know, in social activism, people often see ideology as the kind of more sort of intangible thing that contrasts with fixing the distribution of goods, which is a kind of more, more tangible thing. Um, but our ideas about poverty do seem to be all, like a So there's going to be, so what happens is these are, an, are enable certain beliefs, right? But what I think is that then what happens is that people like in law or whatever try to articulate what the system really is, which is, you know, this stuff. And that's one, one way to make explicit this kind of pattern of behavior. But typically, it's very selective in what it looks at and how it interprets it and the reasons it gives for it. And so I'm interested in um, more how property is practiced and that, that what guides us in the practice of property is the ideology. Now, I know this is, so there's, in the theory of ideology, there are these two strands, one which is much more in the practical orientation side um, and a kind of, Althusserian sort of notion, and you get it in some parts of Marx. But you know, Marx is really not so clear about this. And then there's another part, which is it's more the articulated, more explicit, more set of beliefs kind of stuff. And so you could kind of find the, what the view that Tommy is, is latching onto is that. But what I'm thinking is that he and others use ideology in a way as an explanatory tool and I don't think it's compatible with that account of ideology that it does the sorts of explanations he's looking for. Is this making some sense? Yeah. So I think you could use ideology in that way, um, but I just don't think that it does all the work that we want it to do. In terms of understanding cultural schemas, I was wondering how that fits in where there's a difference between people's attitudes and their behaviors yeah. 
positive to discriminate, but the behavior was different. Okay, so I'm not sure I get the example. Oh, sorry about that. Yes, it, no, you're right, you're fine. So the example. It was a study a couple of decades ago. So that the, but the, were the people who were in the restaurant the ones who were surveyed? That, that was the floor of the study. They had a good experience in the restaurants, but the people who filled in the survey afterwards weren't necessarily the same people who served them. I see. So, so, and, and, and your question is how is it that the representation of the restaurant as being racist or whatever is, is links with the attitudes of the actual people who are in the, in, in the restaurant? sometimes express attitudes that they don't totally. put into practice. Yeah, so people will, so people, I think that experience often is, is open to multiple different interpretations, right? And you can, and along one, in one context you interpret the experience in one way, and in another context you interpret it in another way. So I would suggest that there were maybe different, that different schemas were triggered by the survey than the schemas that was triggered by the experience, and so they describe it in very different ways. Does that make sense? So yeah, because sometimes, yeah, I mean, survey <coughs> research is really interesting in this way, about how it primes people or fails to prime people in terms of the kind of schema that they are going to use to answer it, answer the surveys, and, um, and I think that's why we have to be very suspicious of some survey research, because it's not, it's, it's triggered a certain frame for the experience that might not have been the frame that was relevant to the people when they were actually eating the dinner or something like that. So cultural schemes can be inconsistent with each other? Oh yeah, oh yeah, most of them are. I mean, there are lots and lots of them are. And I think that that's part of the, but that's part of why we, there's a capacity for resistance here. Um, you know, that if I, if I, um, if I, if, if a woman, you know, is treated one way at home and another way in the workplace, she has the possibility of comparing them and thinking that they're both deficient because the way that she's treated at home, she would like her workplace to be a bit more like that. But she'd also like being treated a little more with more respect like she gets at the workplace. And so you've got these schemas that are inconsistent about gender roles and gender relations and such like that. But the fact that you've got those inconsistencies, it can be debilitating because you can't possibly satisfy both. That's the superwoman kind of phenomenon. But you can also say, yeah, but the advantage of superwomen is that they can see where it's all going wrong, right? Because they can see that there are these incompatible demands that are being placed on them, and there's some good in each of them or something. So, uh, so I just wanted to ask a question about the relationship between ideology and responsibility. Yeah. Um, so on two sides. Um, so first of all, um, to what extent um, can we hold a, a population accountable for the ideology that they sustain, <coughs> that they inhabit. Uh, and then the second part is, to what extent does someone's ideology mitigate the appropriateness of blame when yeah. they subsequently act um, in the way that ideology kind of dictates that they should act? Well, you've got to talk to a moral philosopher more about this than, than I am. I mean, I'd be inclined, this is kind of off the cuff, but I'd be inclined to say it's related to some of the research on responsibility for implicit bias sorts of issues. And um, my sense is that um, even though um, we are we are acting always within a cultural frame, we typically have resources to critique that frame. And so far as we don't, 
we are being negligent, maybe, or irresponsible, et cetera, et cetera, like that, insofar as we're not, uh, but we're autonomous. I mean, the frame isn't forcing us to do one thing or another. The problematic is that sometimes when you try to do something to disrupt the frame, your, your interpretation of what you're doing is not what you intended, right? And so you can get caught up in all kinds of bad things like that. But I don't think that we're coerced by the frame sort of to, to just continue enacting it. I think that we're, we more do it by habit. And insofar as we're responsible for our habits, you know, we're responsible for our action under ideology. Um, uh, but at the same time, because ideologies frame your choice architecture, right? Sometimes you're not going to be in a position to to make the right choice because you need material things to make the right choice, right? You need money, for example, or you need, or I mean, the example I think a lot about is um, women quitting their jobs um, when they have babies uh, to take care of their children. And yeah, they would make the, the choice to put the child in in affordable, high-quality childcare in their workplace, if they could, right? But they can't, and so what they're doing often is just doing the, the next best thing from their point of view, uh, the rational thing. And so then they end up reinforcing, <coughs> oftentimes, the belief that this is what women should do. But look, they didn't have any, what, what was their choice? Their choice was really rotten. And so sometimes, on another level, you can't really perform the right action because of the way the the environment, the social environment is structured. So that would be one. And the other thing, to what extent are we responsible for our ideology? <coughs> I as a culture, I think we're very responsible. You know, I think that this is a problem of collective responsibility. <coughs> we as a collective, not me as an individual, but we as a collective should be changing our our dominant ideology. And we need to work together to do that. Can I just jump in there? Is it enough to talk about habit here? I mean, I'm thinking a lot in your talk Judith Butler's way of thinking about bodies that matter and so yes, on. Right. I mean, the example, uh, particularly from To Kill a Mockingbird, where we have um, uh, prescribed desires, let's say, that, that structure a whole scene in which it's impossible for someone to be recognized as innocent yeah. because of the way in which they're inscribed by these schemas. So, I mean, is it is it important then to stress this aspect of social inscription that is, is accompanied by enormously punitive kind yeah. of measures that, yeah. that you know uh, coerce us in a in a certain way to stay inside them, you know, because otherwise you become unintelligible, you become unrecognizable. Oh yeah, oh completely. So, but I think that there I would want to say that the judge and the jury <coughs> were responsible, right? They 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 had an opportunity to think differently, but then what Butler might say is no, that would have been unintelligible to them. That, that was not possible. It would be like thinking about that that uh, two women could be married, you know, uh, 30 years ago. It was uh, not even an intelligible thought um, because of how marriage was defined. And so, so, so there's two part. There's two sides of it. I want to say that the the judge and the and the jury were responsible. They did have some responsibility to think differently. And they were negligent in some way, though understandable when they didn't. But then the inscription on the black body, I mean, that's something that he's not responsible, Tom Robinson is not responsible for others interpreting him in the way he did. And and then the horrible result is, you know, is uh, what happens as a result. So he had no, he wasn't autonomous and he was confined. So were you thinking though of like the judge and the jury that the punishment that would come, which is true, the punishment that would come to a jury member 
who voted otherwise would be tremendously prohibitive. Yeah, no, and, and I think there is responsibility in that space, absolutely. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting that because yeah. you, the price is becoming unintelligible, <laughs> you yeah. shouldn't try to go there. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, think it's, I think it's important to get to that, if you like, lived, embodied dimension, how this is inscribed on, on yeah. the skin and the body. I mean, it's, it's beyond the space of, of attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, this is sort of the, um, the flip side of Daniel's question at the beginning. I'm wondering why it's so important to you to deny that social schemas, attitudes, practices supervene on individual schemas, attitudes, practices. I mean, at least for me, when I think about the, you know, the test for supervenience, I have a really hard time holding in mind cases where, boy, the individual attitudes, practices, schemas, whatever, are held fixed, but the social ones vary in some significant way, especially once we're a little bit externalist about uh, social, about individual attitudes and, uh, and practices, we build in some relations. I mean, not only, I mean, just as you said, all this stuff supervenes on the physical, but it doesn't tempt us at all towards reductionism to, uh, to the physical. You know, organisms are made of particles, but it doesn't mean we have to say that only particles exist, or we have to explain everything in terms of particles, we, just, we allow the supervenience and maybe even composition because it's really complicated and subtle. And I'm wondering why someone like you couldn't happily take on an analogous view about the relationship between the, uh, the social and the individual. Say, so, yeah, there's, there's supervenience. Yeah, maybe there's even some kind of composition, but that doesn't count for much. It doesn't mean we're just bags of attitudes, you know, individual that social attitudes or schemas are just bags of individual attitudes any more than organisms are bags of particles. It's there's still supervenience and composition, but it's complicated enough that there's a kind of explanatory and ontological autonomy. So I guess my thought was, we can be, all of us, be completely wrong about our social structure. And that seems right. And so it seems to me that if, and we can, we can be wrong about the nature of our relationships with each other. And so it seems, maybe this is where I'm, where I'm confused, but then I want to know what, is, what are the attitudes on which our relations supervene if we're totally wrong about our relations? So yeah, that would seem to refute one particularly strong reductionistic thesis, like our social right. structure is what most people think it is, or what some yeah. of us think it is, and so on. But I mean, presumably that's just one one way that the social could supervene on the individual, a really, really simplistic way, a bit like saying, you know, right. um, all the relevant properties of organisms are got by taking what well, the properties of the particle are, or, or something. And another one that you mentioned was, you know, social, a social attitude is what the majority of, you know, social beliefs say is what the majority of the individual people believe. So th those are really naive forms of reductionism, but Elsewhere in the, you know, in the sciences in general, we've gotten used to the idea that there can be supervenience of all these realms, say, on the physical, without anything like this kind of very naive reductionist picture. What, so why couldn't one do that? Okay, I don't have a proposal. I mean, Aaron gave an example of a proposal which was a bit more, a bit more complicated. And I'm sure. Well, I didn't understand that that was part of the problem. Yeah, okay. so, so, so this is where I'm, I'm having trouble, I think, is that I think that the, the social stuff needs to be understood functionally. And of course, all that multiple realizability stuff, and that you know, the hand on the battlefield isn't really a hand, and all that kind of stuff. And 
And so what I don't understand, perhaps, is if the, it just seems, so, so we're talking about ontological, not explanatory reductionism. I think both of them actually. But, uh... Okay, well, there I think, um, I'm talking about having supervenience without having either ontological or explanatory reduction. Okay, right. So you're, so super, so then I'm, so you're saying, oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying, why don't we just have uh, the social supervene on the attitudes of individuals, but Maybe not have ontological reduction or ontological division yeah. or explanatory division. We just have it be a supervenience. So there's no change in the, but then what you have externalist contents and the attitudes of the individuals. So that's the trick of how you get it, is that you say, well, there's a whole lot of the world that's necessary for this social uh, institution to exist because the attitudes of the individuals have to make reference to the stuff in the world. And so you've got a lot of the worldly stuff. So really, so I was thinking it was something like this, that most of, so the, it's the, the supervenience that I was thinking about was not going to be as externalist in the attitudes as you and I are going to be. Because I wanted it to be the case that the social, the social st structure, the social practices and all that depends not just what's in our heads, but what's in the world. But if you think, well, our attitudes depend on what's in the world, well, then you got the world for free, right? Something like that. And if you think you get the world for free, yeah, but the world for free. But it still seems to me that it matters how the world is. I think we could probably still do this even with internal, internally construed um, individuals. I mean, maybe there'd be a little bit more room for variation, but I still have a hard time getting a grip on the idea of a, on a world where all the individual attitudes are even internally all the same and all the various complicated relations between them are much the same. And these social schemas vary wildly. I mean, it'd be, it'd be nice to get an example of or, or something. Well, I mean, maybe I you can get to in other cases where in one case it's H2O and the other case it's XYZ, but that's, that wouldn't be a really, what I should take to be a really significant well, I guess it sort of depends on the level of abstraction that you're going for, because it seems to me that um, you could have, uh, so let's take, I need a different example. Um, what I want to say is that organizing around, um, um, So I think of, of things like food and disease and, and material, uh, these uh, material constraints on our embodiment um, are a crucial uh, constraint on what a certain structure is. Right? And so, and so if, if it's not this disease that is organizing us, but it's a different disease that's organizing us. It could organize us in similar ways, but it would be a different structure is what I would be inclined to but say. It never showed up in individual practices or individual attitudes. I guess part of the intuition, it's hard to see how it could then show up in the social schemas at all if it never showed up in individual practices and attitudes. Diseases obviously show up in a whole bunch of individual practices and attitudes. Let me think about it, and maybe we could talk about yeah. it more because I'm not sure, I have to think about it. 
closer to the handout. Um, so I was wondering if whether you might be gratuitously underselling Shelby's view by um, talking in terms just of what I take to be the first part of the account of what ideology is. So you talk about how he understands it as a widely held set of loosely associated beliefs and implicit judgments. Um, but the quote goes on um, that history represents social realities and that function uh, to bring about or perpetuate unjust social right. relations. And it seems like that part might speak to some of the worries you have about whether ideology can have normative force and be action guiding, whether ideology um, can produce uh, problematic attitudes. Yeah, right? yeah. So it seems like, uh, and especially if you understand the account more broadly as you later do on Shelby's behalf as including processes, right? Um, so then um, it seems like Shelby might have resources to address some of your worries, but then you would still have, and this is why I mean you're gratuitously underselling the view, you would still have these worries about this, there being a sort of an impoverished account of culture here and there being some sort of individualism that's assumed. Right? So it, it seems like, so that was just a minor point. Yeah, just slightly more charitable. Yeah, no, I think, so there's so two things about my, why I take Shelby as kind of a foil. One is that I want to get away with from beliefs, right? And so that I sort of go, okay, all right, let's give him this other stuff too. And so, but I think he tends to, and, and I want to use him also because he thinks that ordinary epistemology is fine right. for thinking about the epistemic failings of ideology. And so I want to say, no. I mean, once you get away from beliefs as being the main thing, you've got to start thinking about other epistemic, forms of epistemic critique and projects for epistemology that we need to be doing. And so, so he's kind of the foil for that part. I don't actually think, so I think he's probably also influenced by a kind of um, background uh, individualism because I think most um, moral theory is sort of influenced by a background individualism. And so, and so I think that he's sort of just, it's simpler to do it this way, just in terms of a kind of individualist model if you just aggregate beliefs or something like that. Um, but I don't know how far he's committed to that. And so I would be willing to grant. And that, but it, it becomes an issue, and this was connected to the quest, one of the other questions, is that what is, what, is, what is ideology doing for him? If it has, if, the, if, if, if these beliefs have a function, and then they're going to, we're going to explain certain things, then I'm not so sure that we can use the individualism, let the individualism stand. Because I think that once you see it as this system that we're caught in, I'm not sure understanding that system is best understood in terms just of individuals and their attitudes. Does that make that help? Yeah. yeah. But I think you're right. I mean, he's, he's, his, he has different, he's in different conversations from the conversations that I'm in. And I think that it's true. I use him for certain things and then move on. Um, yeah, well, I just wanted to uh, pick up on your, on your joke that, um, as a social scientist, I want to pick up on your joke that social theorists needed philosophers to help them define culture. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, my question is an empirical question of dates. I mean, the problem for social scientists is not defining culture, penny, but measuring it. In a way, in explanatory context, that it's not the same measuring the thing that you're trying to explain. So the way in which you measure culture is too close to how you measure attitudes, or how you measure culture is too close to how you measure behavior. 
or how you measure cultures too close to how you measure institutions. If you want to explain attitudes, or you want to explain behaviour, or you want to explain institutions. So the trick is, is actually thinking of ways of measuring it that is not too close to the ways that you're measuring other things. And what you do is you go to objective characteristics like gender, like education, yeah. like, life, like income, like age, like age squared. Uh -huh. and, then, and then you don't need culture because you've got a direct route. I see. Explaining the things. So that's the problem for social theory is actually measuring, not defining culture or denying it exists, but measuring it because that's what social scientists do. They measure things. They measure one thing to explain the measurement of something else. Right, but I, I actually think that ethnography is is where people are trying to come to understand culture, not in the measurements, right? And so I think that there's a problem internal to the social sciences where you have the empirical social scientists and the ethnographers not talking to each other or hating each other or not getting along with each other so much because one of them is trying to capture the, the semiotics of a particular set of interactions, and the other is trying to measure it, and those don't always always work so well, right? Or am I completely off base here? No, I mean, it's, it's, you're right, they don't talk to each other enough, but I mean, you can put in these ethnographic characteristics. Right. It then just says these make a difference, and then you might need the ethnographer to come in to say why. Why does it make a difference? Right. So it just, you know, you put in a variable and it has an effect. But why does it have an effect? Well, then it might be the, inter the interpretation of it. But it's still a problem about, you know, there's still a problem about maybe then, once they've explained it, you can then put in some more objective variables to find that variation within that, that you know, that particular group to show, to show different behaviors within that group. Yeah, but see, that's what I would suggest, is that if the, if you've got these kind of gross categories of measuring, and then you kind of get to something, and the ethnographer comes in and gives you a more fine-grained set because they're saying, look, there's these other variables that are going to be so relevant here. Of it as well. But maybe there's, maybe there's, maybe there's, I, I, I don't have a solution to this. But what I'm suggesting is that I do think that um, uh, there are ways in which meanings are playing a role I don't have a I don't have a good theory of meaning, but I think the ethnographers are a place that where they're trying to figure out the meanings, and and maybe we can and philosophers I think can help with that, and I think maybe that would be a way to sort of enrich the measuring measuring measurement problem. It also comes back to today's questions that giving it a different spin. Um, in, in listening to your talk, I was wondering how much of it you conceived of as a package deal. It seemed to me that there were sort of two themes. One theme was the anti-intellectualized, embodied, materialist, subdoxastic account of both culture and ideology, and I was on board with that. And then, you know, the second theme is rejecting an individualist account of the first theme. Um, now, do you think of that as a package deal? Because it seemed to me that you could buy the first yeah. and not buy the second. And I think there's a reason for not buying the second, which is, it seemed to me that you had a somewhat impoverished conception of the explanatory resources you know, of individualism. I mean, I think of myself as, a, as an individualist, but I certainly don't think that my the explanatory resources are just the attitudes of individuals. It's the material environment in which they act. Uh, yeah. you know, it's the Fine. network of relations between them. Uh, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that accords with the actual practice. I mean, if you think yeah. of, you know, sort of classic 
you know, uh, individuals' explanations for social sciences. Becker's increasing costs of children explanation of the great demographic transition, for example. You know, there's material costs, you know, there's networks, there's the spatial, you know, uh, organisation of populations. All of these, you know, you know, are part of the explanatory resources of individualism. Yeah. Okay. So if you say that those are all part of the explanatory resources of individualism, then you and I are on, you know, in, in, in the same camp. But I have in mind people like John Searle or Michael Pratman or certain other people who I Are think- Are social scientists every one of them? No, but you see, I'm not, but no, I mean, I don't think so. Exactly. But that's part of what I'm trying to say is that, is that social science needs something other than we intentions Anyway, but um, but that to something other than we intentions to explain the social domain, right? We need to have this whole richness of what social science offers us, and that's what I'm trying to get at. So, so let's put it this. So there's two things I want to say. One is um, I don't want a lot more than what you just mentioned, but I also think. That, the, that you're wrong that these explanations are individualistic. Okay, so I think that explanations are answers to questions, right? And so there are certain kinds of questions that you're not going to get it. So why did um, Lisa quit her job when she had Lulu? Okay. Now, if you ask this question, it looks like, well, what you're going to do is look at the mental states of Lisa and say, oh, Lisa preferred that her baby be brought up not in this crappy daycare and because she made less than her husband, you know, it was rational for her to quit her job rather than him to quit her job, and blah, 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 blah. But this question is, needs further specification. So I think it should be, why did Lisa, rather than Larry, quit, something like this. Or where Lisa, rather than Larry, or why did Lisa quit, rather than put her daughter uh, in affordable childcare that was at her was high quality at her workplace, right? Like this. Now, I think that when we're answering these questions, there is a kind of individualistic explanation that is favored by certain rational choice theorists, that's favored by the New York Times, that tends not to recognize that Lisa's Lisa's situation, in that situation, she's relationally constrained by her by what the needs of Lulu are and by her relationship with Larry, and by the fact that there aren't these other kinds of uh, uh, affordable debt childcare. And so the, the, what explains why Lisa, rather than Larry, quit is going to be parallel to why Mona, rather than Michael, um, quit, and why Annie, rather than Andrew, quit. And the, the, the similarity there isn't in the psychological states of the individuals that really is doing the explanation, but is an understanding of the social structure that they're situated in. Namely, that there isn't any long-term you know, uh, uh, adequate daycare, or that there isn't any, um, or that, that 
uh, or that you know Larry wasn't going to quit because he was making a lot of money or something, because the man makes more money than the woman or something like that. So what I'm trying to get at here and talking about explanation and non-individualistic explanation is really something that I think social scientists are often interested in, is what are the structural constraints on the choice architecture rather than what are the attitudes of the individuals. And those choice architectures are going to have to do, in the case of, of, of some of them, material conditions. And in some of them, they're going to have to do with relational constraints on, well, in our society, it's either the mother or the father who has to take you know, responsibility if no one else does, right? because there's no grandmothers around or something like that. So part of what I'm trying to get at in resisting individualism is to push us toward understanding the ways in which social relations and material conditions shape patterns of our behavior. Because you know what the New York Times says? Look at those women. They all love them babies. You know? I mean, they do. They say, oh, you should read some of these articles that the New York Times produces. Numbers of women quitting their jobs. Is it a, you know, when they have children, it is a, it's a higher rate than, you know, for the last 10 years. Why? Those women just have a hard time with the competitive world, and they really love them babies. You know, and you think, oh my god. Right. Anyway, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know whether there's any actual disagreement. Whether this is just terminological, because it seems to me that yes, I agree with the, the view of explanation. But it seems to me that the kind of individualism has the resources okay. to, to capture stuff about structure and things like that. But okay, it may I, just be. It may I just think be it might just be terminological then, because I agree with you and what you were saying. And what social science is trying to do is understand the structures that they're in, and not just their. But I think so. Not talk. So I think that there are a lot. There are philosophers. So maybe it's a certain group of philosophers who claim to be individualists, who've gone down, a, a, gone a direction that I find problematic, who's really my target, and not methodological individualism and social sciences. We have less than one minute, Christine, with us. Is anyone else hot? <laughs> 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 it'll all be over. <laughs> 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 I just wanted to pick up quickly on the exchange you had with Fiona and Seth, just because it kind of raised an interesting question about the picture gallery. So it seems like the
We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. Thank you.